0: Dr. Fern Wixen is with me today. She's Australian, but she has been living and working in Norway for 15 years already. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And how do you like Norway? I've always wanted to go there. Oh, It is such a
1: stunningly beautiful country. I originally came for two years. I got a contract with a job for two years. And I thought, you know, I'll be here a little while, I'll move somewhere else, and then I'll go home in five years. And I haven't left Norway. <laughs> so it is, it's beautiful. But the culture is, you know, there's a very egalitarian society with a lot of support, you know, free medical care, free education. And there's a lot that makes it difficult to leave.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I love Scandinavian countries. And I was just telling you before we started recording that I've, I've been to Sweden uh, I love it. I think you know, just as Norway, it's very egalitarian, it's super organized, very, you know, this country. I mean, the way it's it's admin admin, admin managed, the way the country is managed, <laughs> it's just it's absolutely for me, it's like utopia in a way, right? I mean, compared to right. what I'm coming from, because I'm Colombian and this is a mess. Uh, my country's a mess, unfortunately. But I could not yeah. stand a cold. I could not stand the cold <laughs> of living in one of those countries.
1: Yeah, it's something you adapt to, too. As an Australian, obviously, I'm not used to the cold or the snow. And now I live in Arctic Norway, so the very far north. Um, and now I can't handle the heat. You know, when it's 35 degrees, I start to feel like I'm dying. You know, I feel smothered and suffocated. and I feel like you can't be active. And so it's something that you adjust to, but it is, I mean, our winter is long, it's dark, you know, not everyone can live here. And people who I've hired on on projects and teams um, who come from Latin kind of countries, Latin cultured countries, um, they suffer a lot here, not only because of the temperature, but because of the different lifestyle that there's no life on the streets as they describe it. You know, you, people are more in their homes and it's more an invitational kind of social atmosphere and they really miss that kind of just being able to go out on the street and meet people and have things happening and
0: so the the
1: cultural differences are real as well as the the weather
0: yeah I can only imagine the culture shock uh I totally relate to these people (laughs) talking about they need to have like some sort of like city life or something happening it's yeah yeah it's important um, so, Fern, you are currently the Scientific Secretary of the North Atlantic Marine Mammal Commission. Uh, right. And you actually, so what you do is you provide advice on the, converse, on the conservation of whales and seals, which are two of my favorite animals. Uh, <laughs> how did you get into this job? Like, how, wh- how has your um, career path been? Because I'm super interested to know, um, you know, how do you get to conserving uh, marine life?
1: Right. And actually, my career path is not a straight line. It's not like you would expect that I was one of these people who'd always loved the ocean and, and, you know, had a passion for dolphins and always wanted to be a marine biologist and ended up working, advising governments on how to protect whales and seals. It's not that at all. You know, I didn't really ever have an affinity to the ocean. And before I started working at Numco, I'd had no experience with whale or seal biology, ecology or management. So my path is not straight, but I did, um, when I studied, I was always interested in sort of social and political things, but also biology and nature. And so I did a double degree. I did an art science degree where I did ecology in my science and I did political science in my arts degree. And I did that all the way through. And I did a PhD on environmental regulation of genetically modified crops. Um, which was looking at both the science and the politics um, and then got into the ethics increasingly. And so then I ran a lot of um, research projects and had research teams looking at environmental decision making and management and governance of emerging technologies like biotech and nanotech. Um, And just that working in that space between science and politics and ethics on environmental issues gave me the foundation that when I applied for this job with Numco, they saw overlapping skills and they said, okay, she's never worked with marine mammals, but she has a skill set that is kind of what we need and what we're looking for. And she'll just have to learn about marine mammals. So I kind of came in the back door by working with environmental governance and management on different issues and then landed in marine mammals which makes sense I mean in in northern Norway there's not a lot of agriculture and the focus is in the marine kind of environment so it makes sense uh, where I'm living that I moved in that direction.
0: It's interesting how you know you you think or people in general we think about getting to a place as a straight line but it seldom is a straight line we usually have to take some some detours to get there in a way. And yeah I
1: mean some people must take a straight line, but I don't know who they are. And I think, you know, I wish I wish more young um, people who are struggling saying, I don't know what I want to be. I mean, heard this idea that your career doesn't have to be a straight line that can be more fun and interesting and rewarding if you sort of let yourself wander and meander and not feel like you have to be that straight line either, you know? Yeah. You know, if I would have, I could never have predicted where I ended up. Um, so it's... it's there's something there when you're young and you're unsure, then just be okay to sample, try and, and, you know, find what you're passionate about by a process of elimination in a way.
0: Yeah, no, I completely agree. So um, what, what is the importance of whales and seals? Because I mean, I'm very interested in this subject and I just, I'm very curious You know why is it important to protect these um, marine mammals?
1: Well, what's interesting and what uh, perhaps you and and most of the listeners of the podcast might kind of have a reaction to is actually the the governments that my organization provides advice to, and that's um, Faroe Islands, Iceland, Greenland, and Norway. They're all members of the North Atlantic Marine Mammal Commission. They all hunt marine mammals as a food resource. So all of those countries eat whales and seals of, you know, different countries in different ways and on different species. But they see them as a local, sustainable, um, free-ranging food resource. Uh, And they all hunt them. So they need advice on quota. What is a sustainable catch? What is a sustainable harvest? And of course, that's one part of the job that we do. We have to provide them with advice on, on how many can they take for their food resource without it threatening the population as a whole. But there are so many risks uh, or threats that these animals, like many animals in the ocean are facing, things like pollution, and that's plastic pollution, it's persistent organic um, uh, pollutants, it's also heavy metals, um, and then there's noise disturbance, all the shipping that we have, or the oil drilling that we have, or the military sonar that we use is incredibly disturbing to animals that use sound to navigate and communicate and find prey. Um, and so there's and there's climate change. We work in the Arctic um, where the ice is disappearing incredibly fast, and the temperatures are warming. So you've got these animals who are in the ocean, and we 're trying to find out how are the populations doing and hunting is is the is a really, really tiny component of what these animals are facing in terms of needing management advice and all those others are climate change, the noise, the pollution, and not least uh, bycatch from fisheries you know fishing vessels go out and they often catch seals or dolphins or porpoises or whales in their nets and a huge amount die from bycatch in fisheries. So we have to kind of try and look at all of those different um, impacts that are going on in the marine environment and find out how the populations are doing in the face of all of these pressures.
0: Wow, that's super interesting. You know, I have this image in my head um, of uh, Greenpeace specifically, I think they have like uh they have like large boats that try to um deter um fishing boats who go out you know fishing for whales uh hunting for whales or or hunting for other big mammals. So you know it's interesting to um, to know and learn that the the actual hunting of of these animals is not what is I mean it is not affecting their habitat or affecting their population in general as much as other factors that maybe we're not taking too much into account.
1: No, and it's one of these um, misconceptions because of course in the past, uh, whaling was out of control for profit and driving the industrial revolution in many ways. You know, the, the, we weren't hunting whales to eat them back when the, the populations were crashing. We were hunting them for all kinds of other purposes, the oil to fuel our lamps and the whole industrial kind of development. Um, and and it wasn't really well regulated at all so there was just a massive amount of ships out there um, taking as many from the oceans as they could and we're not in that situation today anymore you know the industry first of all we don't need all those um, all the other products we were previously using whales for we've kind of progressed and, and used different things oil in other ways is now our problem but also um, it's it's hugely regulated, you know, there's much less demand, but there's a really tight, strict regulation of the hunting, but of um, some of the other things like noise, there really isn't um, the same level of attention, uh, research, regulation, monitoring. So it's kind of, it's, I understand why people um, have this image of whale populations being in trouble from hunting because that has previously been the pay case. But now we're in a very different situation, and so are the whale populations. Like the vast majority are really recovering. But um, you know, it's a very controversial question about whether they can be harvested as a sustainable, happy, free-ranging food resource. I mean, that's not a that's not an easy or popular conversation to have. Still, and there are people who will reject it, um, not based on sustainability, but based on animal welfare uh, concerns and issues with killing. Um, potentially sentient beings but of course anyone who's eating pork products of any kind would have a hard time justifying why it's okay to to keep pigs in terrible conditions and 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 eat them but it's not okay to do the same for for a seal or a whale but these are some of the interesting conversations that that future food um, discussions could could pick up but it's it's not easy or a, or a popular conversation to have, but certainly whales in the current day, ha- the hunting and the harvesting is, is not what is um, threatening populations today. That's for sure.
0: That's really interesting. Um, you're also the lead facilitator of a global, a global leadership initiative for women. I'm all about the girl power, so... <laughs> Uh, which has actually led you to participate in the largest all-female expedition in Arta- to Antarctica. So it's in the South. You're um, twice, you've done this twice. And I was, when I read this, I was like, that's like my dream. I really want to go to Antarctica. Is there any tourism down there? I have no idea. Um, so I wanted to ask you how that was. And especially being part of like an all-female expedition, I want to know all about that experience.
1: Yeah, there absolutely is tourism. You you can take uh, a cruise ship down to Antarctica, or you can even fly over. But if you want to see see it in its real form, you you take a ship. Uh, but of course, it's expensive. You know, the people who take those trips are you know a really. Well-financed, I would say, but it's absolutely possible. Anyone can go if you, you have the, the funding. But the Homeward Bound program that I am uh, in the lead facilitation stream of is a fantastic initiative that was developed by a woman in Australia called Fabian Dutner. She had a dream that she was running leadership courses and she just had this dream that And it was a literal dream in the beginning, but she had this dream that if we wanted to really make a difference on this planet and preserve the life on this planet for future generations, then women who had a background in what we call STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine, uh, women who were working in that field really needed to, to receive training that would give them the confidence and the capacity to step up into their leadership potential and take on leadership roles. So she had this idea that women in STEM were a group who could really benefit from leadership training. So the program that she offers Homeward Bound is something that anyone around the world can apply to. uh, And it means you get 12, if you're selected, you get 12 months of leadership training uh, with the Homeward Bound program. And then the last three weeks, it has been in non-COVID times, a voyage to Antarctica where all the women from all around the world, and it's about 100 women each year, um, they get together on the ship and they they voyage down to Antarctica and um, so far they've had four voyages to Antarctica, but they're on their sixth uh, training program. So numbers five and six have had to wait because of COVID, but they're hoping to go uh, next year. I think they're scheduled to to head down there. So the first time I went, I was selected to take part in the program which was in 2018, and we were the largest voyage of all women um, heading to Antarctica at that time. And then I was asked to, to join their lead facilitator stream, and so I got to go again, uh, which was just a fantastic opportunity to, to see both sides of the program, to receive the training, and then to help others to give it, and just, uh, everyone who I talked to before I went said, oh gosh, a ship full of women, that just sounds horrendous. It'll be catty and bitchy and horrible. And, and it was so the opposite. The trainers and the facilitators of the program just work hard to say, look, we all want the same thing. We want life on this planet to thrive and flourish. And we're all incredible, but we're not in competition with each other. We are here as a network, as a support group to cheer each other on and do the best we can to Save life on this planet, and so it was the most incredible, supportive atmosphere, and and just to be around for three weeks, to spend three weeks with a hundred women from all around the world who are brilliant leaders in their own field, uh, it was just truly inspirational. I think we all got off the ship just feeling completely empowered and inspired and ready to bring about positive change. It's truly an incredible program, and I encourage anyone to who works in um, them to look into it because it's not only because you get to spend three weeks in the incredible beauty that is Antarctica, but um, just the network of women that you come away with is astounding.
0: So, what kind of activities did you do you do in this program?
1: So, it's a leadership training. So, you're basically getting training in leadership skills, and for for this program, that includes things like um, science communication because it's oriented to sustainability. You know, how do we have leadership for a sustainable planet. Um, so there's science communication, because all these people work and they're trained in, in science and technology and maths and engineering, but that doesn't mean they know how to talk about their work to a general public and a general audience. And if you want to explain things like climate change or you know what we've got to do about pollution, you have to be able to connect to people's hearts and you have to be able to inspire them and and, and put your highly jargon, technical knowledge into accessible, um, digestible pieces. So there's work on science communication, there's things on um, leadership and how you manage teams and how you have difficult conversations. There's also stuff on science and climate change and what we know and how it's affecting the Antarctic and how it's changing the face of the planet. Um, So there's these kinds of, of training elements that are going on. A lot of leadership and visibility and communication and, and team management and strategic thinking, not the least. There's a great uh, part of it that's also about how you think strategically, both in terms of work and what you want to do with your career, but also in terms of your personal life and how you manage your, your situation, trying to expand all those worlds.
0: That sounds really super interesting. So uh, if anyone would like to apply, they would just Google Homeward, homeward Bound.
1: Yes. And you might come up with other things because that's a bit of an unusual name. But um, if you Googled Homeward Bound and leadership, you would find it. I think the website, I now provide it at the end, if you like, but it's uh, homewardboundprojects.com.au, I think.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: We'll make sure you've got all the details.
0: Yeah, I'll leave it in the description as always. Um, You know, it's funny when you mentioned, you you know, thinking about being in a boat with 100 other women and how how catty that could get and how horrible it's it's interesting that many people um have that conception of what it is to or preconception to, to what it is to just have a lot of women together in confined spaces um but I have found also for per, by per, you know for personal experience that it's not the case it's never the case um, no. I think women can get a little bit caddy and whatnot, if you mix in males into the concoction.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and you know, this is one of the hardest things we struggled with the program because, of course, there's a crew on the ship who are there to kind of take you on on onto land because we go on land every day for a couple of hours and hang out with penguin colonies and and see elephant seals and things. And of course there are guys that drive the the Zodiacs and that would normally on a tourist ship be giving lectures and so on. And a big question for Homeward Bound has been to what extent do you let those guys into the general mix? Can they eat lunch with the the women in the program? How do you manage the relationships there? And the, the leadership has decided to try. The first voyage let the mix without question. And, and, and it wasn't great. You know, not there were problems that were related to how the women related to the men and how the men changed the dynamic of the group. So in recent years, there's been a stricter division in which... You know the the space for the women is more protected and the men are kept kept away. And it's really interesting towards the end of the program when the men are invited to come to sort of a bar dance session, how that shifts you know the dynamic. It is fascinating. But I also think it's a narrative that we that that is potentially told to keep women down. You know, and we enact it, we hear it, and then we enact it. You know, so we think, oh yeah, when women are all together, it's a disaster, and they're bitchy, and they're competitive, and they're catty, and they'll talk behind each other's backs, and this voyage just highlighted to me, it, it doesn't have to be like that. It can be the most amazing, um, supportive, loving network that you can be in um, if you allow it to be, you know, and you don't buy into this narrative necessarily. But can, it's true that men shift the dynamic. Yeah, for sure.
0: I completely agree with you, you know, in terms of, you know, it being a, a narrative. I think we've been told our, our whole lives you know, as women, it's like the other, like women around you are competing for the same men, competing for the same jobs, competing for the same, it's hard enough to be a woman. Now you have to compete with others, you know, who are more or less in in your position for everything. And it's, for me, I think that that's one of the things that I've always been kind of like, I, I rejected ever since I was very young. And I was, for me, it didn't make any sense. Why would be, why instead of competing, wouldn't we all be supporting each other, you know? And I think that's one of the most important things that I have uh, learned. And I was also, I mean, it's not comparable to going to Antarctica, but I was also on a, on a trip. It was like, um, we were one week kite surfing. This was in Morocco and it was just, the program is just for women. It was all ladies. And there were, the men were like some of the instructors and the chef, but they didn't They didn't uh, mix in with the group of women. Like we were also in very protected spaces. And I thought to myself before I got there, I was like, oh my God, I have no idea how this is going to be. And it turned out to be one of the best experiences I've had in my life um, because of that. And it's interesting how, like you said, the dynamic shifts when there are men in the mix. There is, it's very, I mean, from a sociological point of view, it's very interesting
1: yeah, it is. And I think it's also interesting when you go around in your daily life to think about how often am I praising and lifting up other women and putting them, helping them to kind of thrive and move forward? And how often am I kind of um, thinking negative thoughts or feeling that if another woman is doing well, then that has, then I'm somehow lesser than. Um, it's interesting to watch your own thought structure and your own behavior to see how often am I sort of supportive of other women and how often am I kind of trying to feel like I'm in a competition and I think it's deeply ingrained that sense and it's wonderful when you start to try and break those habits and those patterns Absolutely. because you know women have women have got enough uh, struggles uh, than having we need to be supporting each other rather than putting each other down given the everything else we face in this world
0: You're listening to The Honest Uproar, a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. And speaking of uh, struggles and, you know, pressures and expectations uh, that women have to endure in this world, um, how, I wanted to ask you if it somehow did, did your career somehow influence the fact that you didn't want to have children?
1: Yes, for sure. So, I mean, I studied, like I said, I studied ecology and all of my work's been on environmental management and environmental issues. So a lot of my work is focused on what's the state of the planet um, and human activities on the planet. How are they contributing to life looking good or or not? Um, And, and of course, when you do that, when you spend your whole life looking at, um, environmental issues and human nature relationships, um, you can't get around the fact that the human population on this planet and the way we live our lives right now, it's simply not sustainable. And we talk, you know, there's no end to population growth in in our minds. We just think it keeps going and going and going until at some point it might flatten off. But we can't sustain the current way we live on this planet um, with the current amount of people. So the idea that we can add more people um, and continue living the lives that we're all accustomed to, um, particularly in the industrial West, it's, it's not a reality. This planet is finite um, and our lives, our consumer lifestyles right now are incredibly demanding on the planet. Um, so I think you, it's very hard to work in that field and not ask yourself the question of of your own reproduction and, and, and the human population. But it's extremely difficult to actually have open conversations about that. I don't know a topic that I've got in more trouble talking about than than environmental issues and the human population question, which, and of course it's, it's a very complex question. There's lots of dynamics going on and not everyone around the world lives the same life and not everyone has the same contribution. and but I have this sense that people struggle to talk about that in a in an open and civil and <laughs> gentle manner. You know, it's a very hot topic, but I think definitely my job has contributed to my reflective process around having kids or not having kids.
0: Wow. Okay. So I have so many questions. Uh, I mean, just off what you just told me, there's several things that I want to uh, touch on. The first one would be, you know, I, I completely understand how people can get very defensive about Mm -hmm. the fact that you know it's not that you're stripping people away from their right to reproduce but it's when you force people to think about what that means to Mm -hmm. think about the consequences of having children not only in their own micro life you know, not only in, you know, the, their sleeping patterns, the time they're going to have free uh, finances, you name it, but also yeah. the impact, a larger impact in society, a law, and, oh, and even like a larger impact, which is the world impact, right? If you, if you ask these questions, I have found myself that it's, it's extremely hard because it's always reduced to, I can do whatever I want. I can reproduce if I want to. And, and you try to, to tell them, yes, but <laughs> wouldn't it be better if we all thought about all the consequences that reproducing has before we actually made a decision?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, it's this thing where you this whole conversation about children or population or whatever, it's just so dense with blame and shame and feelings of it's, it's prosecution and persecution. And, and if I if I don't do what you do then somehow you're blaming me and shaming me that I've done the wrong thing and this is just such a negative cycle to be in you know if you want to have kids and and you you know of course we need to save this planet we also need children who are raised um who are intelligent who are loving who are compassionate who are smart who are creative so if you're raising those kind of kids we the planet needs them you know so It's not to say I want everyone to stop reproducing and I'm going to somehow in a dictatorial way bring that about. But you want to say for the people who have a hesitation or have a question, you want to open a space and say, hey, you know what? That can be a great way for you to contribute, you know, rather than um, saying that's a a lie that's missing something or that's you're not contributing to society or you're somehow less than because you're not reproducing to say actually you're making a really important contribution by by directing your your love and your nurturing um, instincts into other things you know but i think people often hear um you're, you're wanting me to live the same life that, that you've chosen and therefore you're blaming me for the planet's decline. And that's just not true, but it's hard to have a conversation without people feeling that as the underlying um, background.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And, and so my question, my next question would be how easy or how hard has it been to um, have these conversations with women specifically in your community, in the scientific community.
1: Right. So it's really interesting. When I was on this homeward bound voyage, so this isn't a conversation I've actually been having for longer than I don't know two years. I'd say before that I wasn't. This wasn't a conversation. You know, it wasn't a topic that even fr- even among friends, I wasn't talking about. You know, it's kind of interesting. But in in this program, the last one of Homeward Bound, you know, we were talking a lot about um, the struggles that women face in science. And that includes things like trying to balance family life and work like everyone. That's not just science, but science has its own unique challenges around that balance. And, you know, the women were self-organizing little walk, workshops to discuss this and everything. And just one day I, I stood up and I said, OK, um, that's great um, that you're doing that and please do that. I recognize those problems, but if anyone is struggling with the question of whether to have children or not, or wants to talk about what life is like as a scientist without children and, and what kind of life you, that looks like and how do you feel if you get to a sort of a certain age and you don't have kids, then you know, sit with me at dinner. I'd be happy to talk about it because I think I was the only faculty member maybe who, who didn't have kids. And, um, and then when I went to dinner that night, there were multiple tables of women who wanted to talk to me, you know, and it shocked me how many had been in the room wanting to have that conversation, but it was invisible. You know, nobody had raised it or, or it didn't come up as a question. All the women sharing photos of their gorgeous kids and, and wanting to talk about their aspects were very visible. But this other part, the women who were unsure, or who knew they didn't want to have kids, and wanted to talk about that. They were there, but they were somehow um, not taking space in the conversation. And when I made this little light opening, then then suddenly there were lots of them, you know. And it was so fascinating that dinner where we were spread across multiple tables, but everyone's story was so different, you know. It it wasn't like we were all easily categorizable about why we were thinking this or why we made the decision. It was fascinating. It's a little bit like your podcast where there's people are telling their stories and they're not identical. They might have shared um, uh, patterns or a little sort of pickups on each other's stories, but they're also also so unique, which I just found fascinating. I was like, oh wow. And particularly when we were talking to women from very different cultures around the world, the stories and the experiences and the pressures were, were not the same everywhere. It was kind of interesting.
0: I, I felt like that. when
1: you you would have loved
0: that. (laughs) I would have loved to be there. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I did feel like, you know, you just had to crack the door open just a little bit. And there was a sea of women waiting and wanting to have that conversation. That's what I I mean, that's the feeling I had at the time. And even in the little spaces where I've slightly put this on the table in different settings, you know, I, I feel the same that there is, particularly among a among the young professional women that are in my space today, you know, they're they're educated, they're wanting a profession and a career. Um, there's so many of them who, and who care about the environment. That's the people I'm working with, you know, people who are in science um, means that, you know, they, or the people I work with are care about the environment, they have an education in, in science or some kind of um, environmental area. And therefore there's lots of them having questions and wanting to have a conversation about this. So I think if you just crack the door open, there's a sea of women waiting and hoping to be able to talk about this
0: topic. I totally and completely, yes. I mean, yes, absolutely. Because, you know, prenatalism is just so rampant in our world, in every single industry. And that doesn't exclude the scientific community. Um, I'm shocked. Sometimes to hear or or read or know stories from, for example, the medical um, community, you know, scientists, people who have, uh, you know, who believe in 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 science and facts and whatnot, and and imposing their own personal beliefs on, on women who want to get, for example, um, voluntary sterilization surgeries, mm. um, and it's for me, it's always like I I would understand the judgment, and I would understand the not like the the space not being available in communities that are, uh, for example, extremely religious, or communities that that are extremely conservative. But for me, the scientific community usually has meant open minded, right? Uh, It's a different space. So it's very interesting for me to know and to learn from you, That even in that space, uh, you saw that there was a need to open, you know, to to prompt that to open to open that door, uh, as you call it, for women to start, you know, sharing their stories and asking questions uh, to each other about this subject This very important subject
1: definitely and i felt like you know once we opened it the scientists were very willing to hear and listen to each other and had a curiosity and wanted to understand each other's contexts and stories and we we're, were sort of not trying to judge anyone in that space but uh, it did take someone to to open it up because it wasn't just natural that we would while we're having the conversation about um, balancing work and kid life and sharing pictures of kids it just didn't naturally arise that we would have um, conversation about having a child free life and what that might look like and mean, and what the challenges of that might be, you know, um, it's interesting. I mean, I think that hopefully this is changing and and it will eventually become more natural and more normal, but it did take effort to put that topic on the table for sure. Once it was there, there were plenty of women who were willing to engage with curiosity and compassion, but it wasn't naturally on the table.
0: Yeah, it seldom is. Yeah, <laughs> um, and and you know, on your on the subject of your own personal story or your journey, I think you mentioned that you haven't actually been thinking about this for a very long time. In terms that you didn't actually like make the decision. How does that? How does it been for you? You know, have, uh, regarding um, you know the the choice to not have children, or did you ever want to have children? I'm very interested to know more about your own personal story.
1: Yeah, so, I I mean, I I did. When I was a kid, I really wanted to have children. I thought that was absolutely a part of my future. I thought that, the, you know, bearing life and giving birth to life is just the, the miracle. That's why we were, you know, women. That's what, what the magic of being on this planet was all about. And I couldn't wait to experience it. It was like, I can't wait to be pregnant and carrying a life inside me. What an amazing, thrilling thing. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I can't wait for that part of my life to arrive. Um, and then you know, when I was putting myself through university, I did a number of jobs, but the one I did the longest probably was working as a nanny looking after other people's kids. And then I worked also overseas as an au pair for quite a while while I was sort of in my exploratory university days. And then I quickly realized, you know, wow, kids kids are a lot of work, they're a lot of time, they're a lot of energy, and they were fun. You know, I really loved that job. It felt very rewarding. But I was exhausted at the end of my shift and so happy to hand them back so I could, you know, hang out with my friends or whatever, Um, which I think just made me really cautious. So in my early sort of um, 20s and even late 20s, I was like, I want kids, but I don't want them right now. You know, i got to be careful and (laughs) look after um, myself. And then um, and then so I, I did that for a while and I got um, work overseas and I traveled a lot and I had a lot of adventures. And then at some point I had a long-term partner and at some point I thought, okay, I don't have to be so careful anymore. You know, I can stop using protection and, and it will happen. And when it happens, I'll be happy and that'll, I'll be in that phase of my life, which, you know, is inevitable. Everyone does it and I'll do it too. And when it happens, I'll be thrilled, I'm sure. Um, and then it never happened. So for years went by, and then I got to my mid to late thirties and I thought, okay, this isn't happening naturally as I assumed that it would. If I want kids, I'm going to have to do the trying thing, you know, where timing things and blah, blah, blah. And that just, I, that had no appeal to me at all. I'd seen, I'd seen couples suffer enormously, you know, doing the trying where everything becomes very mechanical and, and it still didn't work and the disappointment and the disappointment was eating away at their joy in life. So I definitely, I knew I didn't want that. And also my partner and I had a conversation. It was like, our lives are extremely fun. We're traveling the world and we feel like we've got a lot going on. And I don't know how a kid really fits into this mix. And that's, so there was this weird thing where if it would have happened, I would have, of course you adapt and you adjust and your life works out, um, was the idea at least. Anyway, if a kid comes, I'll love it and it'll fit in. But trying to have one just didn't suit us because we felt like our lives were full and we were happy and we didn't want to go through that kind of mechanization of of our relationship but it also got to a point where i realized there's this there's, there's also i i'm probably not able to have children um, and i have endometriosis and i've uh, suffered that for years and i have a lot of you know pain and i had Sort of a sense that you know maybe maybe that 's affected my fertility, and of course then um, some years after sort of having a conversation with my partner are we going to try or not try, and we both decided not to try, um, then I got the the message that you, yes, I was infertile, that my fallopian tubes were blocked because of my endometriosis, and then you then people think oh well it 's not a choice you 're infertile it 's not a choice, but of course it 's still a choice you can still i mean Biotechnology and um, IVF is, offers women incredible options. You have choices technologically. Um, even when you're in photo, you have choices and you also have adoption choices, both nationally and internationally, of course. Um, but I chose not to, not to pursue any of those um, for, for various reasons. Reasons around um, you know, feeling like I had a full, rich, busy, um, wonderful life and not wanting to change that also feelings like the planet didn't need me to to take on additional measures to have more children not that i i mean i have huge respect for women who go through ivf and who make that choice and do that people in my family have done that and i love those kids as much as i love any kids you know they're fabulous little beings and i wouldn't want the world without them but that wasn't i chose not to do that it didn't feel right for me it didn't sit well with me and I didn't want to do that. So even the whole choice question I think is interesting because it's kind of, it's often more gray than, than we make out, you know, um, people with infertilities, but people also who, who don't have partners and so on. But that was kind of, yeah, that was my journey in a way. And then it took a long time to sort of say, to accept it, I guess. And to, you know, because you've always had in the back of your mind, or I had, always had in the back of my mind yes I will I will have a kid one day it'll happen you know because it happens to everyone it's of course it's going to happen and then when you get this kind of word that you're infertile and you make this choice then there's the acceptance and the living with it and the making sense of your life um, in light of that 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 takes a lot of time and that I think People struggle with because we don't have an open dialogue uh, in society around it you know i think it's made harder for women to to accept and embrace and to understand what life without children can look like because we don't have the kinds of conversations that you're facilitating so
0: there is so much about you know this uh this that just completely for me it just rings tr- true i i i feel very identified with um you know, first of all, making the choice, I I completely agree with you. I'm not, it's not my personal case, but I've had many, I've spoken to many people, many women in particular who uh, tried and maybe they realized they were infertile. I had a a guest on my show who actually had five pregnancies and five miscarriages. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just, you know, it's a, it's, everyone has their own different situation and story, but you're right. I mean, it, it, it all, boils down to the fact that in the end, it is a choice because of all the reasons that you mentioned. Uh, Not only is there IPF, there's also adoption, there's fostering, there's just so many ways to become a parent. Right. And I admire people who decide to adopt because there are so many children who are abandoned or left to live in horrible conditions in this world who need the love and care of a proper parent. Um, and I really admire people who adopt. It's not something that I would do, but it is because it is a way to parent, right? And and when you choose not totally. to, then you, yeah, exactly. Then you don't, you just don't. Um, yeah. And and I think also even adoption, I mean, there's, this is why I think the choice thing is kind of
1: gray too, because you might, I might've said, okay, I want to adopt. Now, by the time I found out I was infertile and by the time I knew that I, I couldn't have children of my own, I realized that I was too old for most adoption programs that happen nationally. You know, once you turn 40 or you have a partner, my partner is a bit older. And then for many adoption programs, you're too old. And nationally, I mean, there aren't, (laughs) adoption in Norway is not really a thing. You know, I can't just go nationally and get um, an adopted child as an older woman. So then you think, okay, what are your other options? International adoption. And that is So expensive and time consuming, it can take up, you know, years to try and navigate that system. And you have to have 1000s and 1000s and 1000s of dollars. So for that, even though it feels like a choice for some women, it's just not even possible, you know, because of finances or age or whatever. So it's, it's an interesting area. But I know I I worked on an advisory committee for the Norwegian government on biotechnologies, which included revising their laws around all their IVF and all the complex things that come with that. And people would often say, there was a committee of very mixed um, perspectives. So we were trying to get different views and argue across different views before we gave our final advice to the government. But things like people would say, oh, you can always just adopt. You don't need IVF programs because you can always just adopt. And that is just in today's world. We wish that was true. Like a, a lot of the times, the conversation would end with, "Well, we should make international adoption much more easy." You know, <laughs> that would be a really ethically sound approach. But of course, there's politics in the way of that, and international relations in the way of that. But it's easy to say it, but in practice, that option also is not always available. Fostering might be a different a different case.
0: Yeah. I, no. And because yeah fostering is a a completely different case because I know I mean the adoption I I had no idea that it was super expensive to adopt like international adoptions I see people I see foreigners in Colombia all the time uh coming here and picking up adopted children or coming to adopt children and I always I feel so I mean I feel that these kids are so fortunate to have somebody uh, want to take care of them even if it's not in their in the country that they were born in but you know Give them the chance to to life basically um i didn't know it was expensive but the, the everything has to do with ivf surrogacy everything is super expensive normally but there are some countries you're right i mean in terms of the age there is like uh, there are limits there but there are some countries who actually um that it's in, that that is included in like uh social security basically like in in
1: yeah so in Norway, that is that was some of the questions we were debating in this committee. Things like, okay, so we fund um, IVF programs for women who need it, which is you know fantastic. What a what a social service. Um, But the question then was things like, okay, should we fund it for single women? Should single women have a right to access IVF? And that's just, that's a complex thicket of a conversation really. And you have to give advice to the government because of course, you know, could be a woman who just hasn't met the right man yet. Why should she not have access to it like everybody else? If she has a great supportive village community around her who can help her raise her child. Um, you know, really difficult conversations, but surrogacy, for example, is not allowed in Norway. So they fund a lot of IVF support and technology and assistance, but surrogacy is banned. And I sat on that committee thinking, well, surrogacy would suit me perfect, because I would love to experience pregnancy, but I don't feel like a child fits in my life right now. (laughs) Why can't I, if there's someone I know, or my sister, or why wouldn't I be allowed to carry someone else's baby if they can't, and I can, and we can come to an agreement? But of course, there are good reasons why the Norwegian government doesn't permit it, but it's it's interesting, too, that the, the governments around the world have made different choices on these things, and that limits women's choices as well. Yeah. You know, that you, you can't be a surrogate in Norway, but you can absolutely access incredibly high tech um, IVF services and assistance effectively for, for free.
0: Wow. Yeah, amazing. it's very yeah. interesting.
1: Um, yeah. it,
0: it's interesting how, you know, politics shape many of the decisions that we get to do about our own bodies yeah
1: it sure is it sure is
0: yeah wow well Fern this has been such a rich and interesting conversation thank you so much for coming to my show it's been a real pleasure to have you here
1: Uh, It's been wonderful to be with you and to
0: um, be a part of this podcast, which
1: I've listened to a lot. And I really appreciate the stories that you're putting out there and um, enabling women to tell their diverse ways into this community. I, I think it's really important and it can change the way we develop into the future. So I appreciate you putting it out there.
0: Thank you so much. And I always ask all of my guests the same thing at the end of the episode. I, I tell them, you know, you have a space now to tell my audience anything you want, anything at all. So the one thing I'm,
1: I'm thinking a lot about these days is, is how when we don't have children, we're often accessing um, a trope of independence and freedom. And I think that that's I mean, that's fantastic and I understand that and I appreciate it and I want to support people's autonomy and ability to make their own decisions. But as an ecologist, I don't believe in independence. I believe that we are living in relations of dependence and nothing is on its own. Everyone is connected to everything else and we work because we live in communities of relationships and dependence. So I'm really curious um, to be thinking about and working on and and playing with ideas about what what it means for child-free women to think of their choices and their decision and their life, not in terms of I did this for independence and freedom, but um, to think about how it relates to their dependencies. And that's different kinds of dependencies, right? Like I'm thinking about biological community, the life on earth that supports us and how we might think about relationships to those different kinds of dependence um, in in nurturing and compassionate and loving ways. That's something I'm playing with. So if anyone out there is kind of interested in this or has been thinking about language, concepts, words, role models that we can have around child-free lives that that don't necessarily take the trope of um, independence and freedom, uh, take contact, because I'd love to have conversations about that too.
0: Thank you so much. So there's an open invitation for all of you firecrackers. And as always, I'm going to leave you all of Dr. Fern Wixson's contact information in the description of this episode. So your website, any social media, so you can get in touch uh, and you can follow her as well. And thanks again, Fern, for being here. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you for listening to The Honest Uproar a podcast where modern, child-free women share their life stories and where we discuss important topics for the kid-free community. We hope you tune in next week for our newest episode. And since we love hanging out with you, please be sure to follow us on social media at The Honest Uproar and visit our website at thehonestuproar.com. If you like what you heard, feel free to share with your fierce, child-free firecracker friends. Until next time, continue fueling your inner fire.